The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It was named a most anticipated book of 2022 by The Millions and Ms. Magazine, and it was one of Electric Lit's books by women of color to read in 2022. A Tiny Upward Shove, inspired by Melissa Chadburn's Filipino heritage and its folklore. We bring you a conversation with the author and some excerpts from her essay, The Throwaways. Compliments of our friends at Storybound, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, some good stuff today. Melissa Chadburn and the Throwaways. We will hear some of that coming up soon with this guest podcast, guesting podcast from Storybound, available wherever you get your podcasts. Jude Brewer is your host and guide for that. Learn more about the show at thepodglomerate.com. This show is also featured there, by the way, History of Literature, in case you're looking for more links. Did I say that? I'm Jack Wilson. This is the History of Literature podcast, but I guess you knew that already. Ah, more links. If you're looking for more links, you can find them there. More, more, more. I want, I want, I want. That's all of us, right? So you might as well make your wanting something that's worthwhile. A little mental, nutritional value instead of junk. Storybound is rich stuff. A superfood. But first... We will have a little bit of history of literature for you. How about we look at another first from our old friends Uli Bear and Smaran Dial? It's been a while, so let me fill you in on this project of theirs. The full title of their book is Fictions of America, the Book of Firsts. And if you check our ar- our archives, our archives, you can hear me. <laughs> the pirate version. It's all pirate literature there in our 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 archives. You can hear my conversation with Uli and Smaran. The idea that they had is to trace all the firsts in American literature. So we get stories or excerpts or plays or poems and so on from, for example the first Native American creation myth published by a Native author. That's the Earth Diver story, recorded in 1816. The first published poet in the North American colonies, Anne Bradstreet, in 1650, and so on. First work of literature by an African American author. Who do you think it was? Phyllis Wheatley, perhaps? No. She can claim the first book of poetry published by an African-American author, but we are 27 years before that. How about Jupiter Hammond? Nope. You're getting warmer, though. He was the first published African-American poet, but we are still 14 years before that. Mm Mm-hmm. A mystery. Perhaps I've stumped my listeners, except, of course, for Uli and Smaran and other enlightened 
readers of their anthology. Let's take a quick break, and then I will come back with more about the first work of literature by an African-American author after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. After Anne Bradstreet and Robert Hunter, the first author of a play in the American colonies, we have what Uli and Smaran have identified as the first work of literature by an African-American author. Her name was Lucy Terry Prince, born in perhaps 1724, born in Africa, kidnapped as an infant, and sold into slavery when she was about five years old in Rhode Island. She lived in Massachusetts for a while, and then she married a free black man named Obijah Prince, who had purchased her freedom when she was around 30, maybe a little older than that. This was a formidable woman, although this has not been verified because of the historical records and their status, their state. There are accounts of her presenting a case before the Supreme Court. And there are several accounts of her arguing for her son's admission to Williams College. He had served in the War of the American Revolution, but had been rejected from the college because of his race. So Lucy Terry Prince arrived, gave a three-hour speech, according to the reports. Unsuccessful, ultimately, but memorable. They say that Lucy was such a good speaker and storyteller that young boys from the neighborhood would come to her home to listen to her talk. Lucy and her husband were farmers. They were successful, but that aroused the animosity of their white neighbor, a man named John Noyes, who came from a slaveholding family. Noyes damaged their property and sued them to try to harass them into quitting. 
Finally, they hired a lawyer to fight back, and Lucy pled their case in front of the governor of Vermont, and they were successful. Lucy and her husband were successful. The governor sided with them against the noise gang, which were, quote, greatly oppressing, end quote, Lucy and her husband. Much injured, found the governor. That's also in quotes, that's the phrase, but when justice doesn't go your way and you're an entitled racist in early America, what do you do? John Noyes took things into his own hands, assembling a mob to attack the princes and their farm in the middle of the night, nearly killing a black farmhand, beating him nearly to death, burning whatever they could set aflame, including crops, and generally ruining the household. Vermont, God bless them, was strong enough to prosecute the mob and sentence the participants to prison. But they did not prosecute Noyes. Noyes bailed out the mob members that he had hired to ransack the farm, and he got himself elected to Vermont's state legislature. Lucy wound up broke. But she managed to get a case heard in the Vermont Supreme Court that awarded her $200. And we've gone down a rabbit hole of history here, I guess. But this is just to give you a sense of how Lucy was viewed at the time. As a remarkable, persistent woman with strength and courage and gifts for oratory and storytelling. Just the sort of woman who would be the first African-American poet but also, unfortunately, the sort of woman who faced enough trouble and strife that we probably lost her other literary works. We know that she purchased paper. She was perhaps writing them down, but the other works have not survived as far as we know. What we have is a poem called Bar's Fight. Bar's then was a phrase then in use, that meant meadow. It was the story of an Indian ambush of two white families. It's written in verse. Here it is. Ready? This is by Lucy Terry Prince, first known African-American poet. Bars Fight August, twas the 25th, 1746, the Indians did in ambush lay some very valiant men to slay, the names of whom I'll not leave out. Samuel Allen, like a hero, fought, and though he was so brave and bold, his face no more shalt we behold. The teaser Hawks was killed outright before he had time to fight, before he did the Indian see, was shot and killed immediately. Oliver Amsden, he was slain, which caused his friends much grief and pain. Simeon Amsden, they found dead, not many rods distant from his head. Adonisia Gillet, we do hear, did lose his life, which was so dear. John Sadler fled across the water, and thus escaped the dreadful slaughter. Eunice Allen see the Indians coming, and hopes to save herself by running. And had not her petticoats stopped her, the awful creatures had not catched her. Nor Tommy hawked her on the head, and left her on the ground for dead. Young Samuel Allen, oh lack a day, was taken and carried to Canada. 
Hmm. Fascinating. A bit of history written from the perspective of Lucy Terry, Lucy Terry, also known as Lucy Terry Prince, in around 1746. Kind of a an interesting juxtaposition there between the rhymes, which almost make you think you're hearing about nursery rhymes, and a lot of the violence within. Man found not many rods distant from his head. decapitated or tommyhawked upon the head and left on the ground for dead. You can see that her perspective was closely aligned with these white families who were ambushed. Awful creatures, she calls the Indians. That's interesting. This was eight years before the French and Indian War. For those of you who keep track of history like that, it's a ballad from the frontier when the frontier was in Deerfield, Massachusetts. A reminder that black people were there too, observing, recording, participating, bearing witness. And in this case, crafting rhymes that were probably meant to be sung and etching a historical event into the minds of the residents who appreciated it, passed it along. That's why we have it eventually made its way into books, local memory and its oral traditions, and thus the scraps and fragments of literature make their way into the world, continue through it, and once in a while manage to travel hundreds of years forward to those of us who are here today. Okay, let's take our last break and then come back. We're going to turn things over to Storybound, and you will hear from Melissa Chadburn. We'll have that after this. This week, we have Melissa Chadburn on the show. Her writing has appeared in the LA Times, NYT Book Review, NYRB, Longreads, Paris Review Online, and dozens of other places. She's done extensive reporting on the child welfare system and appears in the Netflix docuseries, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. In just a bit, you'll get to hear us chat, and she'll be reading parts of her essay, The Throwaways. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound. You mentioned, by the way, I can't remember where I read this. It might have been on your Twitter or something where you you mentioned sharpening a pencil with a knife. Oh, yeah. My bio is my mom taught me how to sharpen a pencil with a knife and I've been doing the same thing ever since. Yeah, that and I loved it because my stepdaughters were really impressed recently when we didn't have a pencil sharpener available uh-huh. and I used a kitchen knife to sharpen it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it just made me think of my seven-year-old when even when you were describing your experience with books and scouring catalogs and the movie Matilda weirdly resonated with her recently. Uh-huh. A movie that really resonated with me as a kid. You know, it's a kid spending lots of time alone, reading, doing puzzles, 
And how do you account for your ambition as a child, that resilience that you describe in your story? I have a real beef with the word resilience, by the way. Ooh, that's good. Because, you know, I only use the word resilience because it recently came up with another discussion with an author. And if you have beef with it, then that's great. I'm really excited. I wrote a whole piece on it. Well, just because it's a science term that means that something will assume its original shape after impact. And um, I don't think we ever assume our original shape. You know, like those cars, what is it, the Saturn, where you can like hit the door in and it'll pop right back out. And then I also think that people sort of often encourage resilience in lieu of, and um, champion resilience in lieu of actual supports. Can you give me a better word then? Because what I'm looking for is that when I say your ambition as a child, right? right? I'm coming also from a place of my own personal upbringing. Like when you describe spending lots of time alone trying to make, oh, it was a sentence you said, spending lots of time alone trying to make me and my, my mom rich. Mm-hmm. That was my dream. Anytime I would sit down at, at the word processor when I was like eight or nine or when I typed on my par- her parents' typewriter while she worked late. Yeah. That time alone is very precious, that time that's unbothered, it's time to explore and think. Mm -hmm. That's totally apart from where you talk about having a mentor in your life. So how do you account for where that came from internally for you as a child? Can you at all? Yeah, I mean, I was hungry. (laughs) I write these like long, I mean, now I guess they would call it fan fiction. Like I would write these Ramona Quimby books, you know, (laughs) and I would like write like a fake copyright on the page and like, well, two things. I was hungry and like I had no childcare. And so I'd go with my mom to work and she uh, would often be working as like a secretary or something. And, and they used to have that that green and white striped paper with like the little holes on the side that they had to like put into the printer. And so I would just, she'd just give me reams of paper and I would write books on them, mostly really like complicated narratives about me being best friends with Alyssa Milano or something like that. (laughs) 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 I, I, what did I have for breakfast? I had a fun smoothie for breakfast (laughs) that's a question that people they always ask people in los angeles and it's falls flat because nobody ever eats breakfast in los angeles the throwaways i grew up poor not too poor my relatives in the philippines would certainly not consider my youth as poor but poor, like I thought vacuum cleaners were luxury items. I used to sweep the carpet. Back when my mother and I lived in Westwood, in apartment number four in a quadplex, we had roommates. A Caribbean film student who argued with her boyfriend too loudly and a gay couple, one tall redhead named David and his boyfriend, a brunette with a Tom Selleck mustache, also named David. The mustachioed David argued with my mom too much, and our refrigerator was just a bunch of M's and D's on everything. So then we lived by ourselves. By then, we were robbed a lot. By a lot, I mean we were robbed four times. One of the times, we were home, and a guy came in our room with a dull knife poised in the air like he was going to stab us. Instinctually, my mom screamed, Ted, 
and at the sound of a man's name, he dropped his knife and ran out. The burglar didn't even think about taking our jars. They were the first things I checked for. I had 76 cents in mine. Later, we were able to get the fuck out of there. And we didn't have to worry about the robberies and the burglars. And we packed our two little ceramic cookie jars that sat on the mantel. Mine was a small jar with a cork stopper that read Porsche Savings Account. Hers was painted pink and had the words boob job on it. We moved in with my mom's boyfriend. He had a really Irish last name, like Murphy or O'Neill. He was obsessed with everything Japanese. He wanted us to speak Japanese. He wanted me to eat Japanese. He wanted me to write Japanese. He had a two-bedroom apartment and a roommate and a big black piano. I slept in his closet. I pushed his shoes aside and put blankets in the middle and made a fort. Sometimes I lined it with my toys. That feels like a long time ago. My mom is holding on to those days with tight knuckles turned white. It was so long ago, I block it out on most days. You know, growing up with a mom who suffered from mental illness was like, at times it was really whimsical. I often share a story where like, what that looked like was I would be sitting at home and say like watching TV or whatever. And then I could hear her high heels coming up the stairs. And like, no matter what I was doing, I would immediately like get up and start cleaning or something. Cause I just never knew who was going to walk in the door. And so I wanted to be able to a lot for, you know, that storm. Not who who is going to walk in the door. You mean the, uh, what version of, of your mother? What version of my mom? Right. Right. And the whimsical part of her was like, she used to, I like to describe at the time we had these diners in Los Angeles called ships diners and they all had toasters on the table. And so she would say, you know, let's go chase toast. And we would take the bus to all the different ships diners. And like, for me, it was so wonderful to be able to like order my own toast, you know, so they bring you like a stack of bread and then you can toast it yourself and make it yourself. And so I loved, I was like at that stage where I loved like ordering and, and she taught me how to like dance. She really loved the Bee Gees and she would teach me how to like dance to the Bee Gees. And I think that whimsy gave me a lot of, um, and she definitely had an overblown sense of herself. And sometimes that would fall on to me by association. You know, like I was, she would say she was like a double black belt in karate. And that like, you know, I was, I was like Miss Toddler America or something. And I think that that also helps me build this idea of like, that it was going to be possible for me to like build a better way. She taught me how to make a way out of no way in some mm -hmm. sense. You know, again, that brings up to like my mother did a lot of manual labor her entire life. And it was just her and me growing up for mo most of it. And I had that distinct feeling that whatever I was going to do, it was going to help make me and my mom rich. I also she also had an undiagnosed and untreated mental illness and living with that is tough because you you deeply sympathize for your parent and in some ways you kind of become like this friend this comrade this colleague this partner more than just their kid right mm -hmm. and so you really 
empathize with them to a degree that you do see that way out and you're like well i don't want to be stuck in the situation you're in i don't want to f i mean not that not that i could have described all of that or in that way as a kid but you kind of know it you kind of know it yeah. and i find it just i i love that you hey there's the dogs you talked about yeah there's a delivery truck outside so that's gonna happen for a minute I just saw the delivery truck pull up, and I'm like, oh, crap, here we go. Oh, it's great. We got a chorus coming along. Before foster care, there was a night we were raped. My mom in a small twin bed perched beside me, me alone in a bathroom. Maybe this is why a whirlwind hit our house when I entered my teen years. Before the teen years, we were always poor. On the day that I was moved out of that apartment, I didn't know it was going to be the last time I would see the neighboring Mexicans in the building. I was packed like a runaway with just a week's worth of clothing in my backpack. There was a little puffy, drooling baby girl in the window below us. She had dark brown hair and big pearl boba eyes, and I flicked her off because I was trying to teach her how to do that when no one was looking. I was born nice as hell. I was born so damn sweet. I could never get mad. I could never get in trouble. Good, good, good. I curtsied. I studied hard. I said my prayers. I finished my food. If I went to your mom's house, I'd make her love me. I was born with an invisible locket around my neck. Only half a heart. The right half. The half that said, B. Everyone else had the, mine. Then, in foster care, I got pissed. I was pissed because there were so many small, sticky faces. So many kids who I met that had photos of their mothers tucked in their socks, or they put them in a drawer somewhere between their shirts, or they ran away almost every week with the picture next to their chests. They ran away to see their mom, who they loved so much, who worked so hard, but they couldn't stay together because their mom was a prostitute, or their mom was on drugs, or their mom worked in the morning and in the night, so their mom worked all the time. And they never saw them. Or their mom was on welfare and they had too many other siblings. I saw so many kids who wanted more than anything to be with their mom, who loved them a lot, but their mom was poor, so they had, were taken away. Then they lived in a place like the place that I lived, on Venice Boardwalk, where we couldn't go anywhere. And there were lots of rules on how to talk and how to act and what to clean and who not to fuck, and it was all a lot to make me mad. I was pissed. I was virile. I was a clod of gamey teenager. I wanted to fight and draw and write and make messes, and I was hoping maybe that I could go into an alley and get raped and then murdered, and then maybe someone would rape my bones. That was the good type of mood I was in when I first picked up a copy of Leon Tiev's Political Economy. And then suddenly I was critical, and I started to get a little strategic and maybe even tactical at times. But then there were these people who welcomed me into a big house that used to be called the Ukrainian Cultural Center. It was a big wooden house in West Adams with large banisters, and upstairs there was a bookstore. The woman who worked there was an old Bolshevik named Esther, who was at least 70 years old. She joked about going outside and feeling a breeze when she looked down, she realized she'd forgotten her pants. If we ever had a rally and someone was going to get arrested, she raised her hand up high, because really, who'd want to arrest her? 
and we had meetings in the big old house and we plotted how we were going to find a solution and my heart was on fire and I took all that gamey anger and pushed toward plotting for a revolution. I used to teach at a juvenile detention center and came to find very quickly that in order to learn, a child needs four things. One, safety. Two, shelter. Three, food. Four, love. Don't we want all children to have that? I needed it, but I had absolutely no clue. I was 15 years old. It was my first family placement. Instantly, I had a family, a mom, a dad, three brothers, one sister, a dog, a cat. The house was in Cheviot Hills. My basketball team ran past the house during practice. When it was hot, we'd swoop through the door and all jump in the pool. My room was in the back end of the house. It had a waterbed and its own bathroom and windows that cranked out to the pool. I was on an outing with my birth mother. She got to see me once a week. She always liked to push for more. We were at a tea house. Time was beginning to drag. It was getting toward the end of our allotted visiting time and I needed to ask her for what I wanted. That's the moment I realized I might be poor for the rest of my life. As a child, I was certain I was going to make something of myself. There was the whole bit with the grapes and practicing to be a neurosurgeon. When I was a kid, I spent a lot of time alone trying to find a way to make my mom and me rich. I wanted to save lots of lives, so I thought maybe I could be a neurosurgeon. I heard they were the best paid ones. I heard it was like taking off the skin of a grape in one piece without injuring the meat of the grape and then sewing it back together. I sat many hours with a big pile of grapes, one by one unpeeling them. If I made a mistake, I put one down and started over again. I eventually gave up. Mark, my mom's boyfriend, taught me how to smoke cigarettes. I did that instead. Marble Reds. There was the Porsche savings account with $2 and some change in it. I just never doubted I was going to be rich. I mean, I was already taller than all the women in my family. How much harder would it be to be richer? So it was a shock to be sitting in a tea house at 15 years old and to ask my mom for money for spring break, a weekend in Mexico, and for her to hand me 20 bucks. I'll tell you what I did. I handed it back. I had to hand it back and tell her, never mind. Because it was too much to explain that when I said I needed money for a weekend away, I meant more like 200 bucks, not 20. It was too hard to explain that things cost things. I took one glance at my plans to be just like my friends, with a family, and a pool, and a dog, and a cat, and to get to go away for spring break. I looked at that idea and I let it go. I wasn't like anyone, unless that person was poor. I remember the first time I became politically active, as a time of too much and too little. Our parents were useless at their jobs, aging out because of computers and ideas weren't enough anymore. There was no working your way up to the top. It was all schools and classes, and there was this thing called NAFTA. People were getting everything made for cheaper somewhere else, somewhere far away. Because all of this want, we sometimes are afraid we feel too much. Some of us try to go numb. We turn on the television and zone out on political debates or reality people showing their other selves, their nasty, bad-acting selves, 
or read news about serial killers or car bombers, or we drink too much or eat too much or run too much. We make our lives numb so we can take care of ourselves and be separate from a collective anguish of powerlessness. But in that last hour, we're into feeling. We're into intimacy. My beloved says the single most poignant thing I've ever heard. She says, I love to go to bed and I love to wake up. This is so true. I can't say how true it is. It's that first bright moment of feeling everything and completely being relieved of these feelings with either the everythingness of awakeness or the nothingness of sleep. Strangely, it was for dreams like these, the simplest dreams of rest, of feeling, of safety, that I first began to look at taxes. Taxes are the tool that makes these dreams of ours possible. Shelter for everyone, food for everyone. Taxes ensure public safety. And what about love? Love is given and received. Love is not a solitary act. Love requires people to commune with one another. My previous associations with taxes were shame and guilt and trickery. Then I looked at my history with money and public funding in general. Some people have argued that we're a nation of self-interested people, people who only care about themselves, their own well-being. I disagree. I think we're better than that, but have been assaulted by the overwhelming personification of greed. In all the books we read, in all the films we watch, all the stuff in the news and social media, those who possess greed have the characteristic affect of the slow scrape of a Brillo pad against my heart, the most ferocious, the taking of things that do not belong, sex, money, power, children, the taking of too much is greed personified. It's our first lesson in pain. Tell me about your dogs. I mean, they're making a feature, so. Oh, the dogs. So we have, um, we have Harper Lee Longfellow, who's a tiny terrier old guy, and then we have Noah, who's a standard poodle. He's quite fancy. And then we have Frick Frack, who is his uh, doppelganger, but he's a labradoodle, so he's like the less fancy version. He's the one that you're hearing now. (laughs) Hey, there's still more story in conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Melissa Chadburn, author of the book, A Tiny Upward Shove. I would probably feel pretty solid about identifying as an activist. I mean, I spent most of my working life as a labor union organizer. And in fact, when I wrote this essay, we were working on a millionaire's tax initiative. And so civic engagement has always been at the forefront, whether it be uh, organizing other workers, whether it be being part of a class of workers who are organizing ourselves. I'm currently a graduate student, and so we're interested in organizing. But then I love dogs, and so I I walk dogs at the, like the local shelter, and I have always just sort of been engaged with various communities in one, one level or another. 
People often ask me what it was like to be in foster care. I can only tell you what my experience was like. For the most part, I had a very lucky experience. I ingratiated myself to all of my friends' parents, so eventually when the time came, they fostered me. I didn't enter foster care until I was around 15 years old. I grew up really valuing my education. It was the only way out, the only way I could make something of myself. I applied myself thoroughly. When I was six, my mother got accepted and began school at UCLA, and I would sit in the library and wait for her to be let out of classes. I scoured the catalogs of books, 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 books. When I was in junior high, I was in a program for disadvantaged youth, kids who were poor. It allowed us to take college courses while in junior high and high school so we could get ahead, remain interested, save money. I was also in a gifted magnet, which means I got pulled out of class in elementary school to have my IQ tested. I looked at sequences and puzzles and tried to configure them. I remember peering over the desk at the guy administering the test. So, how'd I do? How'd I do? He looked alarmed. I guess... It was secret I was being monitored. Excuse me? On my time, how would I do on my time? He was trying to discreetly time me, the stopwatch under the desk. He laughed. You're doing it fantastic, he said. Then later, I was put in a smaller class with dorks, so I guess I did well. Gifted and talented, they said. Then, at 15, there was foster care. I had to live in a temporary shelter while my foster parents were getting licensed, fingerprinted, house inspected, all of that. During the orientation, I was informed that I probably should not go to school. It would be too difficult to get to and from. They weren't allowed to give us any money for transportation. There were also rules to abide by in the house, rules like lights out at eight. They said I could stay in the house and take classes on site. On site was a fancy way to say special ed. The kids there were perfectly nice, but stuffed with lithium, drooling, overweight, and slowly dragging movements. They were at risk, or some people referred to them as throwaway. I was determined to stay on at school. I only ate half my dinner so I could bring the other half to school for lunch. I made friends with a girl who lived in the neighborhood so we could carpool. My roommate at the time, a pregnant teen, slept with one thumb in her mouth, the tops of her feet rubbing up against each other while I sat with a flashlight in my mouth, pointed at a book under a sheet. Reading, 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 reading. At this point, I got the distinct feeling that it was unfair. Things were unequal. At the end of the year, my classmates and I all got the same piece of paper when we walked across the stage, but the journey there was not equal. The differences didn't end there. They just began. I went back into the group home after being fostered by my friend's family. I had no clue it was temporary. I thought that house... And that family, and that life, was forever. I remember being in my first group home for all girls and having to go to the doctor. They took me to their physician. There, in the gynecologist's office, my legs in stirrups, open like a book, he asked questions. So, why are you in a group home? I guess open like a book is not a good analogy. I was open like a group home. Open like a toilet seat. Open like a trash can. Opened, closed, opened, closed. I had no way to be anymore, and yet I applied to the same jobs as everyone else and put together the same kind of resume as everyone else. And when I went forward and went on a job interview, I tried to look as well-kept as everyone else. 
I even went to a nice blue ribbon school when I was in high school. I graduated from a school in a nice town that's five miles long and has a main street with shops and lots of fraternization and drinking going on. The people who live there own horses and play golf, one of those places. Something else was happening when I was 17. I was going to get emancipated. I had enough with all this temporary foster care, open trash can business. I was ready to be my own guardian. So I put together a binder with all my certificates and accomplishments, photos of me looking like a good girl in Ann Taylor outfits, flowy and silky and non-threatening. I showed these photos to my attorney and a judge and they emancipated me, which really meant that I got no more financial support from the government. And when I was looking at colleges and tracing college applications with my fingertips, places like Sarah Lawrence and Reed College, I suddenly started to wonder how I'd pay for this. So I asked my social worker, and she said it was time I went on general relief. I didn't think she heard me correctly. I asked her how I'd pay for college, and she said again that I could go and apply for general relief. What you do to get general relief is you go and stand in a line all day with other people who are hot and tired and poor and sad and hungry. All of us in the line felt like we moved past this, like there was a more dignifying way to spend our time. Then you fill out some paperwork, and if you're lucky, they sign you up and you get $200 a week, which was 50 cents less than what I got paid when I worked at Winchell's Donuts in high school, where the manager smoked in my face and hit on me all the time, and I got a gun pulled on me for donuts one time, and we couldn't close because I had to work off the loss that was made with that dozen donuts, and closing was simply out of the question. So instead, I worked graveyards with a shaky hand any time a batch of teenagers walked by, which was pretty much always. There's still some story ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Melissa Chadburn, author of the book, A Tiny Upward Shove. night, sometimes, when I'm reading a book, I feel that same loud hum in my bones, the hum of my heart and mind being on fire. Sometimes it happens when I'm writing, or occasionally even if I cook something. It always starts in my head, these things. I'll close my eyes and write a story or draw a picture or imagine a meal, and then when the image in my mind matches the world around me, my hairs stand on end. And I can even still have my eyes shut when I'm doing one of these various things. And I will just know, know I'm getting it right. That's how I feel when I vote. Like, finally, after all of it, all the standing in hungry lines, and marching on asphalt in dark negative degree mornings. All of the gripping of signs, all of the anguish of loving a mother and being terrified of a mother and leaving a mother has led me to this one place, this one slip of paper. I take the paper and the tiny pencil that looks like no big deal, but is the biggest deal. And I think about 
all the mega important times in my life that are marked with dinky little pencils. And I put my mark on the paper and plop it in the box and think of it as the box of wishes and prayers for babies to have one, safety, two, shelter, three, food, four, love. I was going to cry for a moment there, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I didn't expect that to happen, so <laughs> that was you good. Do that. That's fine. I cried on the show. <laughs> the story you heard in this episode was an adaptation of Melissa Chadburn's essay, The Throwaways, which you can read the full essay of on therumpus.net. Her debut novel, A Tiny Upward Shove, is available now at your local bookseller. Thank you to Melissa for reading, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. Production assistance by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Poglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Beltil. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix and engineer is Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, and hosting are done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Ombro of the Poglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryBoundPod. You can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are every Tuesday. See you then. Conglomerate, a sonic universe.